This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Before I introduce today's guest, I just want to quickly say, uh, for the first time in like, I don't know, a year and a half, I happen to go to look at the podcast on iTunes, and there's a whole bunch of really nice reviews. So thank you to uh, those of you who have written very kind reviews. It's possible that it's my mother creating multiple accounts and uh, sock puppeting and complimenting her son, but it seems unlikely because she has enough trouble doing normal uh, operations on her phone. So thanks for the reviews. All right. Today's guest, really excited to have back on the show for a second time, Pete Leeson. He has a new book called WTF, An Economic Tour of the Weird. Pete is obsessed with weird shit, or rather I should say he's obsessed with not being satisfied to say, that's really weird, those people must be stupid or irrational or dumb or whatever. But when he observes bizarre human behavior, he assumes rationality and he tries to get to the bottom of why strange behavior might possibly be efficient or sensible or rational given the situation that people find themselves in. And that is what this book is all about. It is a blast. I highly recommend WTF. Pete, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be back. So first, I want to ask you, you've written tons and you continue to produce tons of academic papers, which the, the word academic papers makes it sound like, oh, these are things that are not fun to read. But you actually are a really clear, cogent writer and your academic uh, papers are actually very readable as well. But you've written a lot of academic papers and you've put out some books um, The Invisible Hook was a more popular type book, but some books that are more on the academic side, a lot of the footnotes and research. This is clearly a very fun, playful, entertaining book. It's not even one of those books that's like, I want to educate you, so I'm going to hide it in an entertaining shell to trick you into being educated. It's It almost seems like you wrote this just for like the sheer fun of it. What was the genesis of this book? The sheer fun of it. You're, you're exactly <laughs> right. Yes, I, mean, I got it. <laughs> Seriously, it's a big part of it. So unlike, like, you know, the Invisible Hook had a popular element, as you mentioned, but this one, I think, kind of takes it to the next level in terms of, of hopefully, you know, appealing to people who, you know, may not have any real interest in, in economics per se. There's a good amount of economics in there, um, a lot of it, in fact. But, but you know, my thought in writing it was this is these are really fun topics, I think. I have a blast when I when I'm learning about them, when I'm writing about them. And because they're all kind of weird, I thought, you know, how fun would it be to basically take the the funness that's inherent in the subject matter and actually build it into the structure of the book itself? And um, that was the genesis of the sort of tour format through a museum of social oddities in the book. And I think part of the reason that, and I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that it's fun to read. It was certainly fun to write. Part of the reason I think for that is that this book, more than any of my other books or writings in general, really has a lot of my personality infused in it. Um, you know, you know me a bit, and so, you know, maybe you could sense that. I think other people who know me somewhat will see that, but it's got a lot of me in it, and um, that made it really easy to write, really, really fun to write, and hopefully, you know, something fun for the reader to read. Oh, it's it's absolutely got a lot of your personality, and I don't know you really well, but I feel like after this book, I know you quite a bit better. It's, I was actually delighted and laughed out loud at sometimes how 
you're, you don't, you, so you're basically the tour guide in this book and you, and you don't really make an effort to like make yourself come off as this wonderful person. There are times where you come off as like a brazen asshole. I think you even write that on one of the comment cards in the back. One of the, one of the other characters in the book basically says, why do you have to be so mean? Uh, which I can relate to. My wife accuses me of that. Maybe it's something about people who like rational choice theory. Um, but there's a lot of self-deprecation in there. You poke fun at yourself. A lot of Almost every chapter, I think, opens up with some kind of a childhood story and you tell some sort of thing that you were involved in and then find a way to relate that to um, these sort of odd social things you're, you're investigating. So, I mean, it really it really is. Actually, I was reading this at the same time I was finally reading uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island. And it just occurred to me how few books are playful and fun to read and sort of play around with words in a non-pretentious way and kind of an entertaining way. Uh, and I thought, man, I got to stop reading books that bore me because it's like, <laughs> I don't notice it when I'm reading them, but when you pick up one that's fun, it's like, why aren't all books written like this? So k- kudos to you for that. Um, why don't you, why don't you actually, if you don't mind, let's pick one of the tour stops in the book. So the book is designed like a, someone is giving a walking tour through a museum of bizarre practices. Um, and there's all these different characters asking questions as you sort of describe these things and, and why they, they came about. Can we pick one of your favorite stops on the tour and actually describe to the listeners the bizarre practice and how you sort of discovered the rationale behind it? Sure. Uh, you know, we can. How about uh, tour stop one, which is on uh, ordeals? Would that work? Absolutely. Let's do it. So explain uh, what ordeals are and uh, we'll go from there. Okay, so for about four centuries, 400 years, between the 9th and 13th centuries, the legal systems of Western Europe pretty much universally decided difficult criminal cases by boiling a pot of water and then throwing a stone or a ring into it and asking accused criminals to plunge their hand into it to fish out the object. And priests actually conducted these these ordeals, and there was a variety of them. So I'm going to talk about the hot water ordeal, but there was also one where instead of plunging your arm into boiling water, the the defendant was asked to carry a piece of burning iron a certain number of paces. And there was actually a cold variety of ordeal, uh, which people are probably maybe more familiar with, where they actually would dunk the defendant into a pool of holy water. Uh, and that one, actually, if you sank, you were considered innocent. And if you floated, you were considered guilty. And this in the is, hot This ones, is straight out of Monty Python, right? The, it know, is, yeah. yeah so what, what also floats in water? <laughs> Very yes. small rocks. Yes. There's, there's also, there's also the, do you remember from, from Monty Python where they've got, I think they're trying to, to establish if a woman is, is, has, is a witch and they've got her on a balance with a duck and they're yes. like, is she heavier than the witch? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. No, so they're, but they're poking fun at an actual, an actual uh, type of legal proceeding to to see whether or not somebody floated in cold water. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it, it was a, it was a big one. It was a big one. In the hot ones, in the hot ordeals. So if, if you sink, you're innocent. Float, you're guilty in the cold. And in the hot ones, if you're not burned to rags by the water, you're innocent. And if you are boiled, then you're guilty. And the 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 superstition, if you want to think about it that way, or at least the belief, the scientifically false belief that underlaid these things and prevailed uh, for hundreds of years, again, in, in medieval Europe, was called judicium dei, which is just Latin for judgment of God. 
And the idea was, you know, in the hot water ordeal that if you were innocent, God would intervene and perform a miracle to prevent the water from boiling you, which would evidence to the court your innocence and vice versa. He'd let the water boil you if you were guilty. And, um, you know, this was if you think about it. So sort of if you step back from from the weirdness and like the theatrics, basically, of, of what was going on with these ordeals. The first thing to do, I think, is to sort of think about the central problem that people are confronting in, in criminal justice. And that actually is the same criminal justice problem to varying degrees that every legal system, no matter time or place, confronts. And that problem is that the only person who knows for sure whether or not they committed the crime is actually the criminal that they've, of which they've been accused is actually the criminal defendant himself. And everybody else is basically you know, trying to make a guess of some sort. And so what legal systems want to do to make that guess better to administer justice is to somehow access this private information that the defendant has about whether or not he did it. Uh, and so medieval European solution was to ask God, you know, God's omniscient. So that includes him knowing whether or not the defendant did it or not. Uh, so we'll just ask him to tell us. So that's the that's the basic structure of what these things look like. And I should say again, this was not a you know sort of rarity one-off scenario. This was all of Western Europe for centuries, and it was actually this system of trial by ordeal that, when it finally gave way in the early 13th century, that gave rise to trial by jury in. Uh, in England and uh, the inquisitorial procedure on the continent. So it was the direct predecessor to our contemporary criminal justice systems. Hmm. The, the logic, so back on the belief, back on the superstition, the logic to these things, uh, as I see it, is, is basically as follows. What they're doing is, that in order to access the defendant's private information about his guilt or innocence, is leveraging his belief in that superstition I mentioned, the idea that God was in fact behind these things. And it's really simple to see if you sort of think about it in a simple example. Put yourself in the shoes of somebody who believes that God intervenes in judicial affairs in the way that I just described. And imagine that you've been accused of committing some crime. So the court, you know, isn't sure whether or not you did it. So it says, you know, look, we want you to, to undergo the hot water ordeal. Uh, if you undergo the ordeal and, you know, you get burned and you're convicted, you're going to have to say, you know, spend a, a month in prison. Um, if you undergo the ordeal and, you know, God performs the miracle and you're not burned, then, you know, you don't have to, there's no punishment at all. We find that you're innocent. The defendant's other alternative would be to try and would be to decline the ordeal, uh, for instance, by confessing. And, and the court might say, you know, look, if you confess, we'll give you, say, three weeks in jail. They're knocking off a, a bit of the, of the punishment because, you know, here you're admitting that you did it, but at least you came forward, so we'll reduce the punishment a bit. So if you put yourself in the shoes of this person, what would you do? Uh, and the first thing to think about is, well, suppose that, in fact, you did commit the crime of which you've been accused. Well, in that case, you expect that if you plunge your arm into the water, if you take the ordeal, God's going to let the water boil you, which means not only you're going to be convicted of the crime and so have to end up spending a month in jail, but you're going to have your arm boiled to rags on top of it. You'd be better off just declining the ordeal, just confessing to your crime. You get a slightly lighter punishment in terms of three weeks in jail, and at least you don't have your arm boiled. So if you, if you are guilty and you know that, you are very likely to confess. Now suppose instead that you didn't actually commit the crime of which you've been accused. What will you do now? Well, 
In this case, you expect that if you plunge your arm into the water and take the ordeal, God will perform the miracle that saves your arm, that prevents you from getting burned. Not only will your arm not be burned, but in fact, because of that, you'll be exonerated, so you won't face any punishment at all. That's better than if you confess to a crime you didn't commit, in which case you'd have to spend you know, three weeks in jail. So if you're innocent, you are very likely to be willing to undergo the ordeal. The trick here, right, is that by leveraging your belief and presenting you with the specter of the trial by boiling water, the, what the legal system has done is basically incentivized you to out yourself, to reveal your guilt or innocence through whether or not you choose to undergo the ordeal or not. So conditional on observing you being willing to plunge your arm in the water, the judicial system knows that you probably didn't commit the crime. And in doing so, they've sort of tapped into that information that only you had before by pretending that God was in fact figuring it out when in fact it was the legal system outing you through your own action. That's the basic logic behind you know, medieval judicial ordeals that I, that I present in the book. And that kind of logic can actually be seen in contemporary legal systems, uh, judicial procedures. It's not restricted to medieval, to medieval Europe. So, so for example, you mentioned um, lie detectors, which scientifically are incredibly unreliable. Uh, yeah, they're sw- bullshit. Yeah. yeah, swearing on the Bible. The, these all sort of appeal to a belief that the lie detector works or that swearing on the Bible somehow, if you don't tell the truth now, the cost is even higher. Um, you know, and I started thinking about, because one of the objections is, okay, I, I get you, Pete, that if people have this belief that God will protect them if they're innocent, etc., then you can leverage that belief to get to information that is otherwise inaccessible given the technology and constraints that these people faced. And priests can also, if someone you know says, I'm willing to undergo the ordeal, as you show, kind of manipulate the ordeal so that the people won't get burned. Um, and then they, they can't do it all the time. They have to have a little bit of, uh, you know, sometimes people have to get burned occasionally so that everybody doesn't, you know, fully start to get suspicious. But yep. if, if I say, okay, I buy all that, but I know a lot of people who believe in God to varying degrees. And I've never been in a community where every single member has 100% unfailing belief in God's supernatural power, even if they sort of maybe claim they do. So, wouldn't it require like a ridiculously high level of belief across every member of society for this to work? What if there's just one skeptic or atheist or doubter among them? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it cause it to unravel? Well, skeptics definitely present a problem because, you know, as you point out, if somebody doesn't believe, the whole thing is based on, on belief. So if somebody doesn't believe the ordeal or the polygraph test or, or whatever, you, whatever it may be that is, that is ba- built on this logic— isn't going to work for that person. Um, but it's not true that if you've got varying, you know, you could have a society that's populated with where everybody believes just a little tiny bit, but not a ton. Uh, you know, they assign some very small probability to the possibility that God is really intervening. And the rest of the probability they assign to the, to the idea that it's all just hokum, you know, perpetrated by crafty priests. And it's still possible in ordeals or with lie detector tests or, again, anything else built on this logic to produce the same outcome, which is sorting, getting the guilty guy to choose one way and the innocent guy to choose another way. The key to making that happen under lower levels of belief is basically by producing more false convictions. You know, so if you think about the the trial by boiling water, 
if people are pretty sure that it's it's a bunch it's a crock of shit and you know they don't really believe that God is actually involved but again there's there's at least some possibility in their mind that that might be true then in order to assure that kind of sorting what the priests need to do is to start boiling more people's arms when they plunge their arm into the water um, and there is, you know, you can show that there basically is for any positive level of belief, no matter how small, there is some amount of boiling that the priests can engage in that will produce that result. Hmm. But the thing is this, right? The system doesn't, even though you can produce separation in that world, it's not a good system to use in that world because the cost becomes really, really high. It doesn't mean if we know that every, you know, because of the sorting, because we're boiling lots of people, we know that, that everybody who's putting their arm in the water is innocent. That doesn't really help us if we end up having to boil 99% of them and convict them anyway. Justice is served, right? So, you know, the system works the best in terms of producing what we would call justice when belief is strong. And as belief erodes, you know, what, what the sort of rational choice sort of thinking suggests is that as belief erodes and so the cost rises – Society is more likely to abandon that method and to adopt another one that isn't susceptible to that problem. Which is precisely what what we see happening historically. It, it's not so much that you know uh, these societies or leaders in these societies are are trying really hard to force irrational beliefs on people so that they can go about doing ordeals because the or, the ordeals emerge to solve a practical problem and they emerge as the solution only because the belief already exists because the belief exactly. is a constraint that's both useful and limiting. There are some things they can't do given those beliefs. Um, but there are other things that are available to them that would not be available in a society that doesn't hold them. That's exactly right. So that's exactly right. So this got me thinking, I mean, one there's, uh, and I think you even mentioned this in the book, um, the, the sort of brilliance of this sort kind of sorting mechanism is like the famous um, story in the Old Testament of, of, you know, King Solomon solving a dispute over whose child this is by saying, okay, we'll cut the baby in half, sort of knowing that when the cost is that high, the real mother would rather give up the child um, and let someone else raise it than to see it die and to sort of tease out the truth. And, and I also, and I also realized on the idea of like total belief that, like you said, even if there's only a tiny belief it's almost like this precautionary principle idea. Well, I'm pretty sure that God isn't real or isn't going to create this. But there's a really high cost to, you know, getting my hand burned or <laughs> or whatever. And like what if like what if there's a chance that it is true? You know what I mean? And and I think I I also thought and this maybe relates to some of the other items in the book better, but there's, I kept thinking of all these practical examples in the here and now. So even in today's world where most people do not have beliefs about the miraculous or at least not enough to like stake anything on them in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, but you see a lot of practices. I was thinking about pickup games of basketball. There's a really interesting phenomenon that happens when there's a call that's in dispute. Someone says, you fouled me. And someone else says, no, I didn't. Mm -hmm. There's this thing called ball doesn't lie. And somebody <laughs> is appointed to, to shoot the ball and the ball doesn't lie. Their claim is correct if they make it. And if Are they you miss kidding it, me? No, know. no. It's totally like a, an unwritten rule of like pick up basketball. And even in the NBA, sometimes when a player gets called for a foul they think is erroneous, the opposing player will shoot a free throw. And if they miss, there was a, a guy on the Pistons who was famous for this. He would yell out, ball don't lie. Ball don't <laughs> lie. Like I'm justified. But yeah, so this is how you solved this dispute oftentimes in pick up basketball. If somebody says I was fouled and someone says I wasn't. 
the guy who was accused of, of committing the foul shoots the ball. And, uh, you know, if, if he makes it, he's right. If he misses it, he doesn't. Now, what's interesting about this is I don't think anyone on that court has like a metaphysical belief that justice is going to guide the ball. It's, yeah. but, but they all kind of know that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's actually scientifically true. What matters is we all believe that submitting to this system is going to produce a better outcome than the alternatives available to us. We don't want to sit here debating all day long. We don't want it to come to a fist fight. We've all just sort of said in the course of this game, we're going to pretend as if the ball doesn't lie because it's more useful. And I thought that, that was like a really interesting thing that hit me. You were talking about using a magic eight ball to, dis- um, to solve disputes with your brother when you were younger. And even if you no longer believe the eight ball has magical powers, it still may behoove you to pretend as if it does because there's nothing more efficient available. Yeah, abs- I mean, that's exactly what I was thinking of is when you were describing the ball don't lie uh, <laughs> or practice, which I had not heard of. And I am like delighted to have, that you mentioned it. This is I know so little about sports. So there's probably like all these great examples from the athletic world that I'm not privy to because I uh, you know don't do anything that involves moving my body for the most part. Well, sports um, are like they're like the last vestige of this sort of uh, more medieval calculus because there are also fights in sports and one of the chapters in your book is about um you know cell swords or trial by combat as a way to solve disputes and there are there are instances in hockey and baseball where they're almost like they're fake fights like theatrical fights where like one guy who wasn't even the one involved will be sort of appointed the enforcer to go out and like fight or fake fight the other guy as a way to like you know raise the cost of harming so i mean it's crazy there's all kinds of things that in sports that are still at like a because there are more constraints, there are fewer options available to you within the game. You know, yeah, that's exactly. I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, you're you're. I mean, spot on. And I let me just go back for a minute to the to the ball example and the eight ball. You know that the in the basketball example in the eight ball, um, that is actually it. So that's a, another tour stop in the book, which is on oracles. And oracles, it turns out, I. I suggest basically function as what economists would call like a correlated equilibrium device, which performs precisely the function that you described. It says, you know, if we both butt heads, we're both worse off. And one of us basically wants to be the guy who gets to kind of, you know, stand tall and the other guy backs down when there's a fight or there's a conflict over something. But the critical thing from a social perspective, from both people's perspective, is that if we can just agree to listen to basically what some third party tells us is the right resolution, it'll at least allow us to get past the conflict and move on, which can be better off for both of us. And that's what the basketball, you know, the the uh, the, the basketball doesn't lie example I think gets at. That's what the magic eight ball with my brother is about, and that's what this. Uh, this group of people in Africa uh, in the modern period, you know, a couple million of them did when they would poison a chicken and shake it like a magic eight ball, see how it responded. And then on the basis of its response, let that tell them whether or not they should – how they should behave toward people that they were uh, in a fight with. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> seems, seems amazing. Crazy. Seems crazy. All that's – you know, all these things – and that's the kind of you know overarching theme of the book. They seem dumb, just like Solomon's cutting the baby in half idea that you alluded to before. It seems stupid on the surface, but they all affect the incentives that people face because people's beliefs affect their incentives. And so social structures, institutions can leverage those things to 
you know, make make those societies a better place. This rational choice theory lens is almost infectious. I mean, as you're going through the book, it's like, okay, you, you've walked me through why ordeals make sense. And then you come to the next stop and it's like, okay, here's a group of people that poison a chicken and shake it to determine, you know, <laughs> who needs to back down in a conflict. And immediately I get all excited and I'm like, okay, I can't wait because I know there's a reason now. Now I know that people don't just randomly do stupid stuff that, that moves them further away from the end they're trying to seek. There's some constraint they're facing. There's some, and and I think it's really exciting because there's an important distinction between someone's beliefs being rational and their actions being rational. Mm -hmm. And, and I think you're, you know, you're demonstrating that people's actions are rational given their beliefs. Now we don't have to decide whether or not a belief in, you know, God's protection or any of these other things that's sort of out of the realm of economics to decide where that comes from, whether that's rational or not. But if it's in place, these activities make sense. And we can't sort of let ourselves off the hook by just being like, Oh, those people are stupid. There's actually something ingenious about, you know, these various, um, rituals that emerge. Um, okay. So, I'm trying to decide what I want to do here first. All right, I'll, I'll do this first. I'm going to read. This is just purely for listeners as a teaser, as a way for you to buy the book, because I laughed out loud when I read this and I had to read it to my wife. So one of the chapters, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you, and I'm not going to ask Pete to explain it to you on the air. You're just going to have to go read the book. One of the chapters is about a very common practice in England of selling wives on like an open auction market. And Everybody seemed to behave as if this was normal. The wives being sold, the people buying them, the people selling them. Uh, so wife sales is this widespread practice. And, practice. and uh, here's a little, a little tidbit from the book. Other husbands advertised their wife's sale in local newspapers using ads like this one, published in a late 18th century paper. Okay, here's the, here's the ad. To be sold for five shillings, my wife, Jane Hebbard, she is stoutly built, stands firm on her posterns, and is sound wind and limb. She can sow and reap, hold a plow, and drive a team, and would answer any stout, able man that can hold ten hold a tight rein, for she is damned hard-mouthed and headstrong, but if properly managed, would either lead or drive as tame as a rabbit. She, she now and then makes a false step. Her husband parts with her because she is too much for him. Inquire of the printer. All her body and clothes will be given with her. <laughs> it's crazy, right? <laughs> it's absolutely absurd, and, it, and it's... It's like impossible when you hear that to imagine anything other than this horrific slave trade, but it wasn't that. It was something very different. And in fact, it was the wives themselves who were uh, the most interested in this practice and who benefited the most from it. So I'll let you buy WTF so you can learn about wife sales. Also, why insects and rats were put on trial and given like these lengthy, very serious sounding legal proceedings and they would have attorneys to defend them who would claim like you got to give us a delay the trial because the rats were held up by a cat they couldn't make it to the courtroom uh truly amazing bizarre practices um okay i want to ask you about a few practices that you mention in the preface or what's called waiting in the lobby but you never explain and i have never done the hard work of applying rational choice theory or looking into these myself i'm hoping you can be my shortcut so (laughs) (laughs) you mention you know, the questions that are interesting to people, you know, that things that don't make sense and rational choice theory can help you understand. And you mentioned two that I'm specifically interested. Why is it harder to find good oranges at a grocery store in Florida than in Michigan? 
And why do you have to take out a second mortgage on your house if you want to shave with a halfway decent razor? In other words, why are razor blades so damn expensive? Help me understand those two, Pete. Oh, you're giving away all the secrets here. Okay. <laughs> but you don't give the answers to those in the book. I know it's deliberate, but I, I will. How oh, you're, are you teasing for the, for the sequel? Uh, well, maybe I, I might be. The, right, well, is if, the, how about if you'd rather you can get, you can choose one if you don't want to do both. How about I give you, I'll give you a, a clue on one and okay. then I'll, I'll kind of talk about a little bit about the other one, which the I don't razors a, is the one that's always bothered me the most. Yeah. Okay. So I'll talk a little bit. I'll say a little bit more, although it's more speculative about that one. Okay. So the or, first on the oranges, if if uh, if your listeners are interested, there is a, a famous result in economics. It's called the th- the third law of demand, sometimes also called the Alshin Allen effect. And if you look that up, it's it's very intuitive and it's actually incredibly important. It explains a ton of behavior. Uh, that will. That will fill you in on what's happening with with the oranges. I have like four huge books by Armin Elchian, and I keep looking at them with this thought that I'd be a better person if I read that, <laughs> and I oh, haven't read it. <laughs> Elchian, he is phenomenal. I mean, j- just you know, he's he is rightly acclaimed and respected, but even with that, he 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 was totally underrated. I mean, he's he's just an amazing. You know, he was a pioneer in property rights economics, and his the, the, the elegance and crispness, I guess, is, is maybe the right word, of his price-theoretic rational choice reasoning is just – it's wonderful. I absolutely love reading him. Hmm. Um, OK, but let's talk a little bit about razors. So, all right, let me start by saying that this is a bit like the, the puzzle of why is popcorn so expensive at the movies. Which, which was – I think was that in The Armchair Economist that Steven Landsberg breaks that one down? It was. Landsberg breaks it down there, and it's been discussed by a lot of economists since, subsequently. And even, you know, even in the armchair economist, if I'm remembering right, he's not – Landsberg isn't totally sure that he's, he's providing the right answers. It, it still remains a bit of a puzzle to, to many economists. But I want to use uh, – the reason I wanted to invoke that was not only because this might be similar, um, but it's similar in, in another way as well, which is that the conventional go-to – if you ask, I think most economists, and you get a, a, just a slightly different version of the answer if you ask a non-economist about why is popcorn so expensive at the movies, is that they'll in some way or another invoke, again, maybe not by name, but invoke the idea of monopoly, of market power. And so, you know, once you're in the movies, they got you, and so now we can jack up the price on popcorn as high as we want. It's a kind of price discrimination. Um, the problem with that, you know, at least from my perspective, is that movies are a pretty damn competitive industry, right? It's not like it's true that once you're in the movie, you need to buy the popcorn from that stand because and they prohibit you from bringing in your own food. But it's also true that, you know, in at least in urban areas in like a 10 mile radius, there's a ton of movie theaters and ex ante, you're choosing which theater you want to go to. Which means that if there were this market power, you would expect, I'm sorry, if there were this kind of monopoly pricing going on, you would expect it to be eroded very quickly because, you know, in order to attract everybody away, all you'd have to do is lower the, the price on your popcorn from $48 to, you know, 47 and everybody would, you know, flood over to that theater. Uh, but you don't see that happening. So the reason that's important is, is, is that. The general idea is that people should not be so quick to think that there is something like monopoly or market power 
which in turn permits price discrimination that can explain these let, kinds let of me things. point out too i just had this experience of getting the oil changed it, Popcorn is one of those things that a lot of businesses actually give away for free. When I was a kid, my grandpa used to take me to the lumber store and I loved going because they had free popcorn. I go to get my oil changed and while it's being changed, I'm stuck. I'm captive for like an hour or whatever it takes and they have free popcorn there. So if if that were the theory, you would think they would be selling me popcorn for $50 as well. But apparently it makes sense to give it away for free to attract business in some industries. So that theory doesn't seem to hold much much water. That's great. That's great. That's right. That's right. And the same kind of thing. So I want all that was a prelude to, I think what most people's instinct is with, you know, if you think about Gillette razors, for example, that's the kind of razor that I use. Best um, a man can get. That's, that's the best, the best a man can get. And perhaps the most expensive a man can get too. because honestly, when I wrote that line about, you know, taking a second mortgage on your house, I was, you know, barely kidding. I mean, it's, they're ridiculously expensive. And so I started thinking about this and, you know, if you talk to people, they will say, well, you know, Gillette has and Schick are basically duopolists. So they've cornered the market and they can charge whatever the hell they want. Um, and I think that's not basically not right. So the first thing to the first aspect of this is that the prices haven't for for Gillette razors have not always been astronomically high. Before we got the, you know, innovation of mock, whatever the hell it was, you know, they come up with a new one based on a car, whatever it is, every every other day. Before that, um, you know, they were not – people – you didn't hear at least, or at least in my reading about it, you don't find people griping so much about razors being, you know, outrageously expensive. Um, that, that's one of the issues. The other is that you might think that, you know, just having a second competitor in that marketplace, which is a very competitive marketplace, think about all the ad money that these companies spend uh, on one another. The easiest way to attract consumers would just be to lower the price just a little bit. Um, and in fact, I should point out the emergence of these dollar shave club type things. I don't know if you've seen this. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a member. You're a Okay. I tried it by the, I thought it's, it was not doing anything for me. Like I didn't like it, but in any event, I did like the price. Yeah. Uh, as in response to that, Gillette at least is starting to reduce its prices a little bit. Okay. All of that said, here's basically my thought from what I can find, which is consistent with, you know, classic economic theory, which would tell us that basically it's very expensive to make these razors. That seems crazy. But there's actually an enormous amount of research that goes into making these razors, which seem like, you know, when the Mach 3, I think it was, first came out, my instinct was this is a gimmick, it's BS. But I tried it and I have not deviated. I get a much better shave with those razors than I do with others, even with imitators like the Dollar Shave Club. So I found out that um, a ton of research goes into basically making the razors work as well as they do, and more specifically, the capital equipment that's required to basically make razors that fine, that, that cut that well, is outrageously expensive. So you might say, well, look, that huge capital upfront expense is going to limit entry into the marketplace, and that makes sense, that might be true. But on a long enough timeline, if there are super normal returns being made there, you would expect people to enter. And perhaps that's what we're seeing with Dollar Shave Club and the like. But there's probably a limit, an important uh, um, and maybe rather strict limit to how far these prices can fall down, given that even when you take that capital expense and you draw it out over the huge number of razors that they're producing, the average cost there is still quite high, at least according to what I was able to find out about it. 
So if, if I told you, hey, uh, you know, the, nobody thinks it's a puzzle. Why are Ferraris so expensive, right? It's super expensive to build a Ferrari. Well, if it turns out that it's super expensive to build a razor, which is from what I can tell again, seems to be the case, then it shouldn't be that much of a puzzle why razors are so expensive either. It's exactly what economic theory would tell us, which is that when the cost of making something is higher, it's equilibrium price, even in a competitive market is going to be higher. So that is the where I sort of am at with the razor situation. <laughs> Uh, I don't. I, I realize that it sounds. It might sound like implausible. Like, how can the razor cost this much? But here's what I would encourage listeners who are skeptical to do: just do some reading about it. Google around. You know, there. Are, actually, I think there's like a, a book or two, maybe even written on it. And come read about the production process, and come back and see if you don't think that maybe it, it's not that crazy that the razors are that expensive after all. That is a. Uh... In some, for some reason, that feels like a a slightly diff, like deflating and disappointing answer. I know. Like I, I want some other bizarre thing to be going on, you know. <laughs> so okay, all right. Here we're gonna put your rational choice theorizing to the test. This is gonna be completely from the hip. I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna present you with a behavior that's not <laughs> super bizarre, but on its face, it doesn't seem to make much sense. And I've wondered about this for a while. Now I have a a sort of a, a weak theory that I've thought about, but I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. So when you're driving on the highway and you know, you're, you're in the, the, um, you know, the, the regular lane, not the passing lane and someone in front of you is going slow and you want to pass them, you go around them and you pass them and something bizarre happens like the vast majority of the time they speed up. Okay. So you would, you would look at it and say they're going a speed that apparently they're comfortable with. And then when you go to pass them, they increase the danger to themselves and to you by speeding <laughs> up to a, to a speed that apparently they weren't concerned about before. And then you have to keep speeding up. And then once you're past them, they seem to go back down to, to like the slower speed again. So, so what would cause somebody... And I think this is probably like a subconscious thing, but there's some kind of brain risk calculation going on. I mean, just like the the research on seatbelt laws, you know, reveal that people drive more risky on the margin when they're wearing seatbelts. I don't think many people are consciously thinking of this, but they have some kind of risk tolerance that their their brain is sort of, you know, optimizing for. What what do you think is going on to make people speed up when someone's passing them? Good question. Very good question. So let me start by saying that it's important to so it's important to distinguish sort of psychological explanations for something from rational choice ones and that can be it's you know there is some blurring that happens because for instance when we're talking about beliefs there can be a psychological component to that right so you could have a belief that you know uh, I am a worse person if I'm a slower driver and this competitive nature that makes me want to win uh, makes me want to speed up or something to that effect. Yeah, I don't think that's what's happening. But yes, that that is that no, is because impossible. the person only does it for a little while. Well, this is okay. So before this is before I get to the explanation, okay, what I okay. think is going on. I just wanted to, to to clarify that there are two different kinds of of explanations here that could be offered. One is sort of like you know a psychological explanation. The other is a rational choice one, which is based on incentives. And so let me offer. What I think is going on there, having been somebody who has done something like this, I'm a terrible driver, by the you way. Bastard. Probably want, I know. I'm sure people, everybody wants to like shoot me, and I don't blame them for that. 
Uh, but my behavior maybe is a little bit different. So to me, the the this what I'm going to offer doesn't work if, in fact, they are dropping back completely to their previous speed. But as long as that they are not dropping back all the way, I think what I'm about to say explains it. At least in my case, I think it's why I do it, which is that I'm driving along in the right lane, right? And my basic goal is always to get wherever I'm trying to go as fast as humanly possible. But there's this important price that I face, right? Or you, you might want to think about it as a constraint, which is that at least around here in DC, there are cops all over the damn place. <laughs> Tickets are expensive and getting pulled over makes me really late in addition to having to pay some fine and my insurance goes up, right? So what do I do? I kind of like drive and I'm looking around and I'm, I'm constantly looking in my mirror again, contributing to me being a shit driver. And I'm looking around and one of the things that I do is I try and get a sense of how fast everybody else is going. Right. So when other people are going fast, if I'm sticking with the pack and I'm sure other drivers have experienced this, you feel safer. And the reason you feel safer moving at that higher speed is that you, in fact, are safer. It's harder for the cops to basically pull you over and you're less likely to stand out as a kind of outlier if the cop is just sitting there even without a radar yeah, gun. You don't, so you don't want to be the slow wounded gazelle when there's a cheetah nearby. Yeah. Or at least you don't want to be at least you don't want to you don't want to be the cheetah on, or the you know, one, or out. the one leading the pack. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what happens? So I'm driving along and all of a sudden I see you come up behind me and you lightning bolt, you know, past me in the left lane. Well, what that did was it just provided me new information that I didn't have before if I wasn't looking behind me about how fast the cars around me are going. That would allow me to update what my optimal speed is, which in this case would be higher. As a result, when you go past me, I speed up because I just learned that now I can go faster and that's the optimal thing for me to do. Now, it might be that once you've gotten all the way past me, I drop my speed back a little bit. I sort of calibrate it. But as long as my, my new maintained speed is higher than it was before, and at least in my case it is, and I'd be willing to bet in, in most cases it probably is, I think that sort of learning, which affects the price of speeding, which in turn causes me to go faster, uh, would explain what it is that's going on. If people are dropping all the way back to their previous speed, then that doesn't work. So there's an empirical question that needs to be answered in order to figure out if the theoretical question is right so we can check the prediction. But that's what it seems to me is going uh, is going on. And, and likewise, I should say, part of, I think, another maybe aspect of, of what this kind of a model would predict is that – if you are the guy who's, you know, passing people on the left and all of a sudden, you know, now maybe you're making, maybe you consciously know, look, I'm willing to be the cheetah. So it's, it's worth it for me to be the leader of the pack because I really have to get where I'm going fast. Then this wouldn't apply. But if you sort of, you know, are actually trading off the cost and benefit of speeding, getting there faster versus not. If when I'm in, in the car with my wife, for example, who drives like Mario Andretti, when she goes, you know, flying, tearing past 10 cars on the left, usually that will be – she'll be like, oh, we just went past a ton of people because we've been talking. She hasn't been paying attention to how fast she's going, and then she slows her speed down. So the fact that she's learning information about the optimal speed to go to stay with the pack as well by tearing past everybody. So there's this calibration that can happen on both sides. So, so that's – so that's kind of where my thinking went. So if you'll indulge me for a minute, I'm going to I'm going to present something. I have no way to prove this or anything. But this is what came to my mind as I thought about it because I think roads are a really interesting uh, area for us because you have tons of information that has to be processed and tons of communication between individuals, but there's no way to talk. 
You can't talk. You can't bid with prices. You're confined in these boxes that are soundproof and you have to somehow communicate without that. And so I kind of, I was kind of thinking of the idea of sort of signaling as a means of communication and social cost as a means of like incentivizing or disincentivizing certain behavior. So, you know, in a certain social setting, if you do something, you might get an ugly look for, from someone. And that's a way of them imposing a cost on you for that behavior, raising the cost of, you know, wearing that shirt or whatever that might be deemed offensive and reducing the chances that you'll do it because the group doesn't like it as much, etc. So I thought, even if you had a case where there were no cops around or where the person does return to their previous speed, it could be the case <laughs> that whenever you pass someone, you are increasing the risk to yourself and to everybody else on the road. So there's a, a very slightly, it's not a ton, but somebody weaving in and out of traffic, increasing their speed, passing somebody increases the risk to everybody of driving. And so when someone starts to zoom past you, there's almost this instinctive thing that you increase your speed as a way to signal to them to, to basically raise the cost of passing. So I actually think mm -hmm. about this when I'm going to pass someone, I think, okay, I'm on cruise control at 75 and I'm slowly catching up to this person. I might as well go ahead and get over and pass them because I'm clearly going a little bit faster than they're comfortable going. But often I'll back down my speed instead because I have to build into my calculation that when I start to pass them, they're likely to speed up as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to speed up much more than I'm already going. And so by, by having this behavior be common, they've kind of raised the cost of passing. It's almost like they're speeding up as a way to signal to me hey, buddy, this is a costly thing that you're doing and I'm going to make it even more costly. You're going to have to go even faster than you were originally comfortable with. And this is a way for me to be like, are you, are you sure? I'm just, I'm letting you know this is risky. This is dangerous. And then I sort of drop back to my other speed. And so it's a way to kind of reduce the number of people zooming by in and out of traffic by slightly raising the cost of passing somebody. Yeah, I think that I, I, I like it. I like it a lot. I think that could that one way to, to sort of test our computer. Yeah, because I, I have no idea how you would go about like even trying to tease something out. So what would you do to try to, to, to test something like this? Well, one thing. So if we had different and a lot of times you do, right, there's the, the, the rational choice theorizing presents you with multiple competing hypotheses. And so in this case, and they could both be going on at the same time and, and many could, other factors. Absolutely. So here, I think what we the clear thing you pointed to what we want to do is that we want to be able to observe what what is happening with the behavior when there are cops present and when there are not. Now, it's hard to do that because even if there aren't cops present, people assign some probability to cops being present, right? Yeah. Um, so it gets it gets difficult. But another thing to think about, so as you were as you were offering your explanation, which again I like very much, is that that there's a secondary cost that and maybe there's a simple explanation for it, maybe there's not, that I think needs to be accounted for in there, which is that if we if we assume that the passing activity is increasing the probability of, of something bad happening and that that expected cost is increasing in the speed at which we're driving, then when I, if you go to pass me and I want to punish you by basically speeding up, I'm basically incurring a, an additional cost. I'm bearing a cost sort of for society, if you want to think about that, for the mm -hmm. other drivers on the road where I'm punishing you. I'm paying the price, the, fully the price of punishing you, even though everybody is getting the benefit. And that's actually a really common a really common situation in using norms to govern behavior. 
And there are workarounds to it. In fact, in the book, um, one so of like the boycotting stat- would be an example. I don't go to a restaurant that I actually enjoy going to because I think that something about it is bad for society as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or it could be, you know, um, the person who needs to be boycotted is like your best friend. And mm-hmm. so it's extra costly for you to basically carry out the punishment to take part in the boycott. There's this social benefit that you're contributing to, but you're bearing an extra high part of the cost. And that might make you less likely to do it, which can cause the whole mechanism to break down. Uh, but there are these workarounds. And in the book, I have a, one of the tour stops is on gypsy law. And that is a, a huge problem in the context of creating private governance, a sort of self-enforcing system of, uh, of, of cooperation among gypsies who can't rely on, on government for a variety of reasons that I discuss in the book uh, for that purpose. But they, have, they encounter that problem and they have, I think, pretty cool, clever workarounds. And there may be something like that that happens in the context of driving as well if that's in fact what's going on. But that's a that's a kind of thing where in answering the puzzle, we kind of have this other one that emerges. And so we, we need to see if we can also explain that secondary part of the puzzle that's generated by our answer to the first one. Or, you know, the, the, the hypothesis that I offered, I think, doesn't have that piece to it. And so if we couldn't explain that second piece, that might be a reason to privilege the other theory sort of before we'd looked at the evidence. But that's how I might think about it. This stuff is like so addictive once you start, <laughs> once you start thinking this way. So let me ask you about, because I'll occasionally sing the praises of rational choice theory in some blog post or something. And I think there's this fundamental misunderstanding of what it is or what is meant by an economist when they say rationality. And as I said before, it's, it's talking specifically about actions being rational given a set of beliefs. It's not claiming the beliefs are rational. So what is your thought on this sort of strain of, of thinking that says, oh, well, rational choice theory um, doesn't really work because people have biases. People aren't rational. They're, they're bad at calculating their own costs and benefits. You know, so Pete, this is all neat that you kind of pretend like every bizarre activity uh, is rational, but people aren't rational, so it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this honestly, that is a very common way of thinking, especially nowadays. I mean, we, you know, uh, uh, Thaler just won the Nobel Prize, a famous behavioral economist uh, last Monday for work, obviously, you know, in this vein. And, you know, this that style of thinking honestly drives me up, uh, drives me up a wall. Me and, too. Uh, I, I tried to read thinking fast and slow. And I'm like, all this stuff is interesting. But but what you're the way you're defining it drives me nuts saying that this proves people aren't rational. It's like, well, I don't, I don't like the way you're defining rational. You're cause if you throw that out, well, anyway, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox. Okay. You, you tell me, you tell me why it drives you nuts. <laughs> well, I think it, it is, there's a lot, there's actually a, a ton of reasons why. And, and to be, to be honest, part of the sort of my purpose in writing WTF was actually a kind of subtle way, I think, uh, or maybe it's not so subtle, I don't know, of offering an alternative to that, of pushing back against that idea. You know, here I'm taking practices that seem like they couldn't possibly be explained, so to speak, through anything other than just the fact that people are, you know, nuts. They just do crazy, irrational things. And and I'm trying to say, actually, they can be, and I think it's pretty plausible. Here you go. Here's here's how I think they can be explained. Um, So it's sort of like a you know, an antidote in my mind to that style of thinking. 
But the, the first reason why I, I, I don't like that style of thinking is probably the most important is that I think it's just wrong. You know, to, to me, to me, rational choice is, is very, very basic, right? It's very simple. And I think it's, it's hard to contest. And all that it says, all that rationality means here is that people have goals and that they try and pursue those goals as best as they can, given their limitations and the limitations of their environment. I don't know how, you know, the idea which is behind a lot of what's happening with behavioral economics, I think, is that you're somehow going to go into a, a contrived laboratory, you know, setting consisting of college students and test the test that proposition of rationality. To me is honestly, it's kind of silly, or I think it, at least it's coming at the question from a totally different perspective. So maybe it's not fair of me to say it's silly. It's just different. Um, but the reason is that rationality as I just have defined it is not actually a testable proposition, right? It's not. It's, 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 it's categorically a, true. It's, it's like categorically true, which somebody could say is a reason to object to it because, you know, it's not falsifiable. But here's another thing that's cat that we accept that's not falsifiable and is categorically true in the same way that is the foundation for all scientific uh, endeavor. And that is the principle of determinacy or of causality, however, however you want to call it. You know, the idea that every every outcome that we observe or result that we observe has an there is an adequate explanation for its cause. A cause exists. You can only engage in science, natural science, social science, whatever it is, if you presume going in that that's true. And there's no way to actually ever determine if it's true. Um, but it's necessary in order to frame our thinking to engage in science. I think about explaining human behavior as using – as rationality is basically performing the same function. It's a way of framing the question and us thinking about behavior that, that sort of guides where it is that we're going to look, right? So it says – economics right, is, is incredibly simple. All that it says, it's based on two basic assumptions. One is that resources are scarce, so you can't have everything you want, so you've got to choose. And then second, the second assumption is this one of rationality, which is just an assumption about how we choose, which is the best way that we can given our limitations and, and the limitations around us or of our environment. Um, and everything in economics flows from that. That framing is really important because it tells us where we need to look to try and possibly explain and understand human behavior. So it tells us for example, that the limitations that people confront and that their environment confronts them with, aka constraints, are going to be an important determinant of how people choose, how they behave. So it tells us we need to look there. The other thing it tells us that we need to look at is how the relative constraints, the relative opportunities that people confront will affect their behavior, which is just a different way of saying incentives or prices. So it tells us we need to look there. Finally, it tells us that since it's assuming that people have goals that they're pursuing, that we need to think about what people's goals are if we want to sensibly understand what their behavior is. So we need to direct attention there. That's it. Once we set up the problem in that way, which is a useful way because I think it captures the essence of basically the conditions that people confront when they actually make choices, then we're able to productively expend our energies down different paths to try and figure out what's going on. It sort of limits the number of things that we're going to look at. For many people, I think the fact that it it does that limiting is actually a reason to them to object to doing it that way. And you'll hear this in the form often of, well, it's unrealistic. Well, 
it is unrealistic in a way, but it's unrealistic by construction. So the idea of a theory is, is it's a model, right? It's a simplification. It's an abstraction from all these aspects of reality, except what we think are the core aspects. Here, the core aspects are scarcity and rationality. So all the other pieces are stripped away so that we can get analytical traction and know where to look by focusing in on those essential components of reality. Hmm. And that's, that's what rational choice is doing. If we didn't do that, if we didn't simplify in that way, it's true in a sense you might say that things would be, quote, more realistic, but also our theories and models would cease to exist. We would just be literally describing the state of affairs instead of analyzing and understanding and explaining the state of affairs. Well, and it, it also helps, uh, I found almost on, I mean, almost down to a personal level, it helps navigate the world with less frustration, anger, and sort of like surprise or irritation at other people. If you, if you strip away, cause if you just look at a, a practice and say, this is a dumb action, people shouldn't take it. Hey, people, stop taking this stupid action. It's stupid, right? Like you're going to be perpetually frustrated. But if you if you use rational choice theory, as you've done in, in WTF and your other work, to say, okay, why are they doing this? And it forces you to look at the constraints they face, which can be beliefs, which can be material constraints. It can be a lot of different things. And now you have to say, okay, given these constraints, it's predictable and completely sensible that they're doing this. So if, if this action, if I want it to cease... I can't focus on the action itself. I got to focus on the constraints that are that are behind it. And I think that's a really powerful thing to help you. And then and then may reveal to you that you're powerless to change those constraints, in which case you shouldn't, you know, get all upset about it. Or maybe there is some way you can you can change those constraints. It it kind of reveals that in a way that markets are unstoppable. And if you and if you try to if you try to shut down one form of a market, um, another one will emerge, right? Like if, if one of the constraints, for example, today, if, if there are examples where uh, an anti-market belief is one of the constraints, people think that it's just icky to like put a, a money price on something. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, when, 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 when that's seen as something icky and you're sort of a social pariah, if you try to, you know, sell something that people think is not, shouldn't have a money price on it. It's not that markets go away. It's that they emerge in other ways and often less desirable ways. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's a really – that's a hugely important piece of this. You're right. It's, it's, there's, a, there's an important policy lesson here, which is that if you think in terms of constraints and you, and you say people are rational, a combination of those implies that people are optimizing. They're doing the best that they can given their constraints, Right. And that in turn, so that might not be very good, right? They might not be doing very good. We might wish that the constraint was different and things could look a lot different than they do. But if that is in fact sort of what they're limited by, and then government comes in and wants to offer an intervention to supposedly, you know, eliminate the barbarism or, you know, get the craziness, get the quote unquote irrationality out of the picture. By definition, any intervention that they, that government makes is going to be one that is it leads to a worse outcome than that which previously prevailed because what that which previously prevailed, we said, reflected the best that people could do given their constraints. So unless government can change the constraint in that case, um, in many cases they cannot, we're only going to be able to end up doing something worse than what we were doing before. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So this was really fascinating in the book. Now, I'm, I'm, I get all excited by this kind of stuff, but maybe other people don't. But 
so many times you're talking about everything from the the use of leveraging a belief in Santa Claus to get children to obey to magic eight balls for disputes to you know uh, trial by combat and insight all these crazy things and in all the cases it was the reason that these actions you know work uh, are because of these constraints and many times those constraints involve belief. So the belief in the polygraph test is what makes it a useful way to get people to to reveal themselves, etc. And this was alluded to, but never directly said, the belief in the the myth of the rule of law or the belief in the authority or standing of government itself, which I would consider a superstition equal to any of the others listed in the book. Uh-huh. That's sort of the only the the only thing upon which that like that constraint is why government uh you know court systems law systems whatever are in place and are functioning it's 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 no it's no more of a rational scientific enlightened foundation than um using an appeal to santa claus to get children to behave using an appeal to the state's authority is is a similar superstition and i would argue one that uh has not always been there and won't always be there um what i don't know what what is your take on the relationship between i guess okay let me see if i can if i can zoom out a little bit more so given that belief is one of the dominant constraints here do you think that attempting to to alter belief is a fruitful task or is it like very dangerous because you don't know what you're going to get do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely do. I think it, I think the answer is that it's both. Um, you have the prospect. So if beliefs are the constraint, right? And you can relax. Anytime you relax a constraint, things automatically become better because there's more opportunities than there were before, right? So if we, if we talk about changing the belief in a way, we're talking about can you can you relax the constraint or can you at least change it? I guess it isn't always going to be a relaxation, but if we if we think about it as relaxing it for a moment, there is the prospect for making things better, but there's also the prospect for making things worse, which is that you could constrain thinking and therefore active actions that that are that are sensible in a different kind of way, in a way that makes things worse. Um, so it's I think that the answer is that it's it's both. Let me you know. One of the things that, that comes to mind on this, when you were talking about the myth of the rule of law um, and, and the superstition upon which government institutions are based, which is something I totally agree with and I think is really important, it got me thinking a bit about James Buchanan, who you know won the Nobel Prize in 1986, and one of his, his huge contributions was to this area called constitutional political economy. And he spent much of his career trying to understand how you know we how constitutions could be used to in fact constrain government he believed that government was necessary for society to function effectively and so you know he thought well going back to madison's paradox given that we're going to have a government we have to somehow constrain it because we see that where it's not constrained things go to hell in a handbasket and he, he has this whole project of you know constitu- of constitutions the economics of them how they function and I just started working on this paper, um, which is tentatively entitled "Beneficent Bullshit." And you have a, a penchant for alliteration and, and punnery. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I do. I like it. I like it a lot. And I, I came across Buchanan is my inspiration for this paper, which is what made me think of it. And I came across um, this letter, and I actually can't remember off 
offhand now who, who the letter was to. But what Buchanan basically says is that he kind of admits that the whole thing's a puppet show. What he, what he says is sort of constitutions const can constrain, but they can only constrain sort of where people have the superstition that constitutions are, effect, are in fact effective constraints. That like mm -hmm. where, where people effectively believe in the right kind of magic, government yep. works well. Um, and I think that's totally right. You know, I mean, I think that's right. Governments work much less poorly. <laughs> they are they are much more constrained when people hold the proper superstitions. And so you might think about conditional having a, on having a government. Buchanan's project is one about trying to change people's thinking. You know, change that that uh, belief constraint in order to make it so that government is less harmful. And so you can think about his whole his whole kind of you know a large part anyway of his career is being engaged in that project of trying to change of trying to change the constraint um, rooted in this logic which he never articulated at least to my knowledge I can't find it anywhere in his published work he doesn't come out and say it which makes sense also right it's kind of like with the polygraphs you know a couple of people have given me a hard time about well polygraphs aren't going to work now to detect lies because you know you've 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 outed them. Yeah, I'm out of them. I'm making it public that they're that they're baloney. Um, you know, I, hopefully my work is that influential that that will in fact <laughs> that will in fact happen. Although I'm I'm pretty skeptical. But the thing is, you know, from it remind reminds me of Buchanan because it makes sense that Buchanan wouldn't want to make it public that this is you know based on superstition because if it if it becomes known, then the superstition doesn't work anymore. Right, right, yeah, and and what I've has sort of always fascinated me and and frankly driven my entire a career journey and intellectual journey is, you know, coming to the realization that beliefs are typically like the foundational constraints. Now, I mean, material constraints are as well, but often, often belief is the interpretive lens that you sort of look at that through. And so altering those beliefs, if you don't like a given practice, um, you know, altering those beliefs is better than just sort of calling the practice uh, crappy. Mm -hmm. And, and the realization that, and this is shown throughout the book when many of these practices faded away, sometimes it was a change in belief brought about by a direct confrontation sort of intellectually with the ideas underlying them. So say the Protestant Reformation might undermine a belief in the in papal infallibility and therefore a certain practice will, will go out of favor. And that primarily is happening from people directly engaging with ideas and changing their mind based on new information. But what often happens, and this is a big breakthrough for me, which sort of led me to go down the entrepreneurial path, um, is that I think people's beliefs change based on experiences they have that change and they don't involve any rational, they don't involve any argument uh, at all. So if you believe that, for instance, uh, a child is incapable of navigating the world without a public school system. They won't know how to read. They won't know how to write. They'll be indigent and, you know, completely desperate. Um, trying to argue somebody out of that belief sort of through logic and, and ideas, you might get a small percentage of people, but what happens much more powerfully to alter the belief is all of a sudden people kids stop going to school or there's a private school or homeschooling or some alternative and people experience it. Mm -hmm. And then they say, Oh, this new thing. And they never actually have to alter. They never have to say I was wrong. Now I've changed. They're just, and they're not even engaging on the intellectual level. They're engaging on the experiential level. So to undermine the, you know, belief in the necessity of, of 
government regulated taxi cabs, you know, you create Uber instead of just arguing about it. And there's something really powerful about realizing there's multiple fronts on which you can alter those constraints, the belief constraint through direct sharing of information like you do in this book. Hey, polygraph tests are, are, you know, bullshit. So here's information. If you engage it and you believe my argument, your belief will change and your actions will change. Or you can, you know, create some new innovation, some new technology that's better than the polygraph machine and make polygraph machines, you know, fade out based just on experience alone. And I, I just think that's a really interesting interplay there. Once you kind of realize what's going on here, it, it's not only about direct argumentation. It's also about creating alternative experiences that undermine uh, those previous beliefs. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and it actually reminds me, I, I agree 100 percent. I think it's a really important point. And there's actually an example of this in the book. It, there's there's one primary case, which is actually the the, the discussion of the, of the criminal prosecution of insects and rodents that you alluded to before. There's one That's, of my all time favorites. And you have a great little... Um, drawing in there, which I believe was your own drawing, correct? Yeah, I actually illustrated the book, which was super fun. <laughs> it's like a rat with like a, yeah, it's amazing. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm really glad you like, yeah, it was, it was really fun. Baron Baldesmere, that's his Baron Baldesmere, that's right, the rat, yes. Sorry, continue. Uh, <laughs> no, no, so that in that chapter, it's about, well, I, I won't ruin it and go into depth here, but, but it's about actors, in this case, the Catholic Church, Engaging in active, understanding the power of beliefs to uh, their revenue, tithing revenue, and then in trying to engage in activity that gives people new experiences. That so they don't they don't go out and say, hey, you need to believe this thing, which is necessary for them to make money. In fact, belief in that thing that they've been arguing for is eroding. So what the church seeks to do is to engage in a practice that gives the population that has waning belief new experiences that cause their beliefs to shift in the in the direction of what the church wants. And they give the population, rather than tell, instructing them, they give them that experience through prosecuting crickets and rats, uh, which is a crazy part of it. But but it, it's a – I thought of it because it, it is exactly – I mean it's different obviously in a way, but th at a fundamental level, it's about shifting beliefs not through instruction but through – experiences. Yeah. Yeah. The, the more there's a, there's a diminishing return even to people who let's say believe in, um, you know, the authority of the church. If all you ever do is give lectures about why you should be tithing at some point, your words, you know, there, there's a, there's a diminishing return, but if you can demonstrate in some way, something yeah. that people say, Ooh, I want more of that. Oh, I can only get more of that if I tithe. Got it. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a powerful insight. So let me ask you a final question before I ask you about your, your next projects. When you go through, when you find all these, you know, bizarre, what, what do you call them in the opening? Curiosa, strange activities and all these, you know, um, social uh, norms and things. Does it make you does it, the, the odd beliefs and practices make you respect humans more or less? So do you look and say, wow, this is actually a really ingenious institution that emerged given these constraints. Humans are amazing. This makes me more of an optimist. Or does it make you say the fact that they would need, that their beliefs are so stupid that they would have to have this crazy convoluted thing in order to work within those constraints, does that like make you depressed for humanity? <laughs> the, it, the, fir the former. It makes me much, made me much more optimistic about humanity because, you know, one of the things is that the beliefs themselves, look, the beliefs are unscientific beliefs, but so is the belief in God. And nobody thinks that that's – relatively few people in the United States, for example, who are Christian think that that's crazy, right? I mean 
it's, it's an unscientific belief that on the surface, if you were describing it to somebody who was unfamiliar with Christianity, they might think, what the hell are you talking about? Raised from the dead, you know, wine into blood, all kinds of crazy stuff. None of this, you know, virgin births. It sounds batshit, right? But I don't think people think about it that way, right? We, we, I, to me, the fact that people have that belief in God is not uh, a reason to be depressed because, look, they hold on scientific beliefs. Instead, it's think about how these beliefs emerge through the lens of rational choice to basically help make our world better. You know, the, the, the idea is that all of this stuff, beliefs and institutions and behavior and their interactions are constantly adapting and evolving to each other, not in a random fashion, but in a fashion that inures on average to the benefit of the people who are involved. And so uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I never, I shouldn't say never, but I try not to ever, and I think I'm pretty good at it, you know, see people doing something and think to myself, my God, those people are just dumb. I certainly never think, my God, those people are just irrational. Um, but if I catch myself thinking they're stupid, what I do is I think, okay, wait a minute, you know, this is something that I should study. You know, this is something I should think about more. And that's really what led to the examination of the particular rituals and crazy stuff that you find in the book. There's such a, a wonderful flavor to your work because of that, I think. I mean, I, I think the fact that you'll go look at the most bizarre stuff and there's a tone that comes through. It's clear that you find this exciting and fascinating and you find the world a more interesting, fun place because of, you know, all these things that are going on that you're investigating rather than, oh, everyone's an idiot. I'm so depressed. And that, I mean, I just think there's something to that that's really important to sort of step back as a as a researcher or just someone who's inquiring about the world and to just kind of like be in awe and be delighted by, you know, by the, the, the reality that we live in. And that's why approaching this as sort of a Ripley's believe it or not is such a great, I think it's such a great, um, I don't want to say gimmick, but it's such a great sort of, uh, you know, tool to, to bring that kind of fun playfulness into understanding human behavior. So it doesn't turn into a, you know, cause it can get really depressing. Like, you know, why do people do crazy things it can lead you down very dark roads, but you, I think you do a great job of un, under, you know, uncovering truths there in a way that makes you leave sort of happier to be alive than you started. So that's a, that's, that's no small feat. That's an impressive feat. Well, thanks. That's great. So, so give me a little teaser. You already mentioned you might be doing some work on oranges and razor blades. Do you have another book in the works or what's next for you? I do. I have, I have the, um, I have, been working so I started this WTF years ago, many years ago, and uh, I didn't just didn't come to fruition for quite some time. And as a consequence, I in the process started working on sort of what could be a sequel to it. If this one does well enough, that's something that I would I would really like to do. Um, I have a couple other book project possibilities that I'm not going to share quite yet because I'm still sort of mulling them over. But I will tell you. Uh, a, a paper project that I'm working on, which might become, I guess, one of them. And that is on the economics of homelessness or of panhandlers in, in particular. Hmm. Um, 
and you know it's a crazy thing what got me thinking about it is, is sort of you know if you live in a in a major city at least right panhandlers are part of your everyday life you go to any public place you see them every day on your way to work on your way home when you're going out on the weekend they're in front of CVS they're at the park they're on the museum steps they're outside the metro you name it they're there uh, and yet almost nothing is known about them and part of the reason that I suspect that very little is known about them is that the sort of prevailing wisdom is that these people are quote unquote mentally ill um, or just crazy. And which you, which is a which is like a it like sends off an alarm in your head now when people say something like oh just crazy like it's too easy it's too easy to let yourself off the hook with that explanation exactly <laughs> and that's what got me interested in this really is is you know. If you well, the first thing is that if you think that that's right, then there isn't really any social science to be done, or at least it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to do any social science because you can't, for example, talk to these people and ask them questions about why they're doing what they're doing and uh, their circumstances and so on because it would all be gibberish, right? If they're if they're all just you know belong in a loony bin or something. Um, so. What I wanted to do, what I want to do is to sort of examine this question about, well, how does the behavior, and there's a tremendous, if you stu if you observe it, a tremendous variety of panhandler behaviors, um, all the way from, you know, you just think about a very simple one, you know, sometimes you see the guy sitting there with a sign, sometimes he's shaking a cup in your face, sometimes he's strumming a guitar, sometimes he's shouting obscenities at you, sometimes he's just laying there, you know, blocking the entranceway asleep wherever you're trying to go. Um, what explains that, that, that diversity of behavior? I don't, I am skeptical of the idea that it's just random and that these guys are just crazy. So what I've been doing with a co-author over the past couple of years is going out and collecting observational data on panhandlers. So we're not asking them, uh, you know, questions of which we can't verify, you know, which wouldn't, which is problematic for a number of reasons. But one of the things that we wanted to do to get a sense of what economists call their level of human capital what you could think of here is some combination of maybe their sort of uh, intelligence, but also their learned learned educational skill. Uh, there's a lot of problems with with this this particular instrument that we're using, but we think it gives us some insight here. And so what we did was we created a little story problem math quiz that has three questions on it. And we administer it to them, and we pay them for if they're willing to even just take a look at the test. And then for every question they get right, we give them more money. So they're incentivized to do well. Uh, most of them take it. And you know what? So far, it seems anyway, most of them do a hell of a lot better than you would think. Um, <laughs> not like, you know, this is not an extraordinarily difficult test, but they did pretty damn well. And, and as just a sort of point of comparison, I and I'm going to do more on this, we administered this quiz in a, uh, a class at George Mason where I am of – of uh, non-econ majors, it's sort of a mix of different people in this class um, who were taking an econ class called Economics for the Citizen. So it's sort of an introduction to economics. And we gave them the exact same quiz. And while they performed better, they didn't perform like tremendously better. And these are like juniors and seniors in college, okay? So <laughs> there's, I mean, there's so much fascinating stuff here, but one thing is that at a minimum, I think we can say that these people that everyone thinks are crazy and or dumb really aren't. And we're sort of building a model in which we're analyzing 
panhandlers as profit maximizers. So what would a rational profit maximizer, what would homo economicus do if we put him on the corner and had him, and had him panhandle? And then what we're going to do is to use the data that we've collected to test how closely panhandler behavior comports with homo economicus, or as I'm calling him, hobo economicus. <laughs> I knew there was a pun in here somewhere. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Yeah, I think that's going to be the title of the paper, at least until somebody tells me that it's you know horribly insensitive or something. <laughs> that um, is absolutely fascinating. So um, that will be available on peterleeson.com? It will eventually. It's got a little okay. ways to go, but yes, it will. Okay. So yeah, peterleeson.com, tons of papers and stuff, but go to Amazon, pick up a copy of WTF, An Economic Tour of the Weird by our returning guest, Pete Leeson. Pete, it is always a pleasure. Uh, I will, I will try to smoke a cigar in your honor sometime today. I know you're a, you're a, um, raging, what did you call it? Chain smoking, you know, cigar, uh, loving eccentric. So that's right. I'll smoke several in your honor, Gary. <laughs> wow. I'm, I feel really, really privileged. Thanks so much for joining me, Pete. Thank you, Isaac. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you later. All right. Hey, I want to tell you about two other podcasts real quick. The first is called Forward Tilt. Check it out. Five to 10 minute episodes about specific ideas to improve your personal and professional life. Basic thoughts, uh, concepts, just a single one in each episode boiled down real quick. If you like that five to 10 minute format, check it out wherever it is that you subscribe and listen to podcasts it's called Forward Tilt pretty good if I do say so myself. The second one is called Office Hours. It's TK Coleman, frequent guest of this podcast, and myself, and we spend about 30 minutes every week answering specific questions from specific people. Could be you if you send us a question about success in the workplace, primarily primarily professional success for people sort of early in their careers, but it actually covers a pretty broad range. Anything from how to ask for a raise, how to impress somebody, how to know what kind of work to do, how to what to what to do when someone won't respond to your emails, anything like that. It's full of wit and wisdom that is characteristic of conversations with TK. Check out Office Hours and Forward Tilt if you like the kind of stuff on this show. Thanks for listening.